Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Journal Podcasts. This podcast contains recording from the News Hour at Beaver Congress 2022. Uh, moving straight on, the next speaker is James Crabtree, who's going to give us an update on recent uh, publications in the field of reproduction. Thank you, Tim. Okay, so these are papers that have been presented between Beaver last year and Beaver this year. Um, some declarations there, probably the only relevant ones are that I do act as a distributor of intrauterine devices, and I'm going to talk about those in one of the papers presented today. But first of all, I'd like to start with a paper from the Equine Veterinary Journal, which is a collaborative report from the University of California, Davis, the Royal Veterinary College, and, um, and also Rossdale's. Um, in Newmarket. And this is a report of the first reported case of warm blood fragile foal syndrome in a thoroughbred foal. So moving on to some of the clinical details of the case. So it was a thoroughbred foal that was presented as a dystochia with its dam, which was subsequently euthanized because it had multiple skin lesions and multiple developmental abnormalities. The post-mortem suggested that it had a condition of collagen dysplasia, and this was very interesting, so it was investigated, and it was demonstrated that uh, the foal was homozygous for the, um, the warm-blood fragile foal um, allele, which is the PLOD1 variant. Um, now, this is an interesting case because we know there has been some suggestion that the prevalence of warm blood fragile foal syndrome in the warm bloods may have been introduced many, many years ago. And there was a suggestion that the source of that abnormality may have been the thoroughbred in the Hanoverians especially. And we do know though that there is a very, very low allele frequency in thoroughbred mares. And we do know that the mutant gene is also present in other breeds of horse and it has been demonstrated in others such as the Haflinger. So demonstration of this in a thoroughbred foal in with both alleles being the um, recessive variant um, manifested as a, a fragile foal. So the workers suggested that we might need to change the name and it's no longer warm blood fragile foal syndrome, but rather a, a, a fragile foal syndrome. And it is going to trigger some investigative um, analysis of, of the wider population to see if actually there are more carriers out there. And as we understand the nature of the thoroughbred breeding industry, there's relatively smaller number of stallions than there are mares. And so this may be something that we need to consider when we're screening uh, mares for breeding, but even more so stallions for breeding. The next paper is a, another paper from EVJ, which is mainly from the university and the team at the University of Kentucky. And it's looking at tra transcriptomic analysis of the Coriolantois in equine premature placental separation. Now, not a great deal is known about the, the mechanisms behind premature placental separation. These are when the, the placenta is separating away from the endometrium at foaling, these red bag deliveries, um, such as this one. And so really we want to investigate. Now, very difficult to investigate these processes. And so a few years ago, this transcriptomic analysis came into the, into the field of reproduction and has really taken off as a, as a data mining um, technique. It's a little bit like dredging the ocean uh, for fish in that it gathers massive amounts of data, which then needs to be worked on, but it does give us some clues as to what may happen. So these were looking at thoroughbred mares with a clinical history of premature placental separation. 
and from control mares, relatively small numbers. Um, transcriptomic changes in the villus area um, of the Coriolantois near the cervical star were determined. They were sequenced and, and subsequent computer-assisted analyses performed. And they were looking for differentially expressed genes between controls and um, PPS cases. Now, the diagram here um, shows the different clusters of the genes that are expressed. So here we can see cluster four uh, is the turquoise. And I highlight that first because the four little dots in the corner are the genes that were expressed in the, in the control cases. But here we can see we've got four different clusters of genes which are all as a result of differential expression. 1,204 differentially expressed genes were identified between clinical cases and controls, and those were related to extracellular matrix and cell adhesion pathways, and also hypoxia and inflammation. It is interesting, I think, from this paper that some of these processes are also the processes that are involved with retained placentas. There have been suggestions that cell adhesion uh, and metal MMP activity is important in separation of the placenta. So this investigation might actually prove to have a double edge to its sword in that it's actually also maybe giving us some clues to the um, pathophysiology of retained placenta as well. Moving on with a similar methodology, another paper from EVJ from the University of Pennsylvania looking at the, the testicular transcriptome in stallions with age-related testicular degeneration. So this was looking at a number of healthy stallions. Um, testicles were acquired through castration or euthanasia. Um, the samples were processed in a very similar way to the first paper, sequenced um, and bioinformatics and um, uh, processes with using computerized technology to identify what the genes were. The results suggested it was actually chronic low-grade inflammation that might be involved in the pathophysiology of uh, testicular degeneration. And interestingly, when we look at the gene expression here, there were a total of 756 differentially expressed genes between degenerate testicles. Um, and interestingly, they ran the data analysis twice because they had an outlier. So the three blue dots here are the control cases. These three here are uh, cases of testicular degeneration. And one right at the bottom here is actually representative. It was a 23-year-old Appaloosa stallion that um, had very much end-stage testicular disease. So it had small fibrotic testicles with very little spermatogenesis going on in there, likely down into the zero to 5% of spermatogenesis. So it was interesting that they actually had three groups, control, testicular degeneration, and an end-stage testicle. So this is only the starting point. We need to take this data and move on and investigate further, but it might be giving us some clues as to, to why testicular degeneration occurs in the first place. So moving on, we've got a paper here from Eve. It's a little bit more uh, clinical based, and it's about the intravenous use of formalin for the treatment of hemorrhage in horses. Um, and this was a paper published from Kansas State University. Now there's lots of detail and I'm not going to dive into it too much, but there's intravenous formalin has often been one of those things that people hear about somebody else using. Um, it was something that I got exposure to in the Southern Hemisphere um, in ambulatory practice, where if you had a mare that was bleeding from a uterine artery rupture and you couldn't have anything else to do, or you didn't have access to anything else, you could consider intravenous formalin. Um, the protocol that was used varied slightly 
but was generally using a 50 mil solution of 10% formalin diluted in, in one to two liters of either sodium chloride or lactated ringers. As you can see, if you're interested in this subject, you can read this paper, but there's also many of the cases also received amino caproic acid. Of course, if we're in the UK, we were thinking maybe using tranexamic acid, uh, yun yan bio, the uh, Chinese herb, and also whole blood transfusions. There was one case in this series that uh, didn't survive, which was euthanized, uh, which was a horse with a, with a hemothorax. And interestingly, when you look at the PCV data, the data dipped and the lowest PCVs were about 13%. The one other thing to take from this paper is that um, it's often been proposed that formalin would damage the kidneys, and it was interesting that a lot of these horses were hypervolemic, so had um, increased creatinine levels prior to formalin, but all of them resolved and none of them had any long-term effects. Proposed that formalin may have not caused any adverse effects in the management of these cases. Moving on from there, we've got a report in EVE of a cystic calculus in a mare. This is from a practice in California. And I think this is it's a very interesting paper because it's, it's brutally honest about where the mistakes were made in this case. And it's about the management of a mare that presented possibly because of a pyometra, possibly because something was in the uterus, and possibly she could have had um, an intrauterine marble placed because of uh, behavioral issues in the past. And actually, a, a thorough workup by the clinic in question um, demonstrated that she did have a foreign body, but it wasn't in a uterus, it was in her bladder. Um, the bladder had a, a large um, urolith in there, which when removed, had demonstrated to be that it actually had a core of a, of a glass marble, which had been mis, misplaced into the bladder of the mare when it was intended to go into the uterus of the mare. Um, it describes the management, the removal of the calculus, and also the resolution of the case. And also the resolution of the clinical signs which were misattributed to estrous behavior. So it's a very interesting and honest case about how things can go wrong, but how things can be um, attributed to the wrong behavioral pattern as well, which makes it interesting. The next paper is another EVE paper um, about equine ovarian teratomas. Um, it is looking at the diagnostic challenges illustrated by case reports. Now, it, it's a beautifully illustrated report here from uh, Sharjah Equine Hospital and, the, and a team at the University of Alexandria in Egypt. Um, there is some, I've taken some pictures from the paper here to show you, but in essence on the left here, uh, we have uh, some ultrasound images showing some of the abnormalities within the ovaries of, a, of a, 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 an ovary which is affected by a teratoma. The second case here um, in, in the middle is, is another case of a teratoma and the, the, the ultrasound description is very nicely described in the paper and, and corresponding this to, to hair material and other material that is present within um, an affected ovary. They also included a report of two cases of uh, which they suspected to be teratomas, which actually were normal ovarian tissue, which through the process of um, normal luteal formation and luteal regression um, were actually unaffected totally. And the ultrasound image on the far right is actually a normal ovary. And they compare the features of those across to the teratomas, which, which makes it, so, it's a very, very useful paper to read as well from a reference point. It also highlights that there, in the literature especially, there is an over-representation of um, 
Arabian mares affected by teratoma. So we don't know whether that's just a, a quirk of the literature or whether that's actually um, a greater predilection for teratomas in Arabian mares. Moving on, we've got a, a paper here from the Journal of Equine Veterinary Science. Um, and it's looking at the clinical outcome of transcervical infusion of a combination of procaine penicillin and gentamicin in late-term pregnant mares. Now, we all know that placentitis uh, treatment is a very challenging condition to treat, um, and there are, there are, we are always looking for better ways to effectively treat placentitis cases. And I don't know where, this is a, a paper um, that is from North Carolina State University and Iowa State University. Um, some of the names in this paper, Karen Von Dolan and Scott Bailey, um, have also looked at the effects of penicillin and gentamicin in an in vivo and in vitro model um, in postpartum mares, say, demonstrating that the combination of penicillin and gentamicin appears to be effective. I won't go through all of this detail, but essentially they were looking at healthy pregnant pony mares. Um, there was an infusion of 10 milliliters of 2.4 million international units of procaine penicillin and 200 milligrams of gentamicin. Um, this was infused through the cervix between the, um, behind the cervix between the Coriolantois and the um, endometrium between 280 and 295 days. All the mares foaled without complications and produced viable foals. Um, they generally foaled between 12 and 58 days after the antibiotic fusion, um, but they also had a mean gestational uh, length of 322 days, which is probably a fraction shorter than one would expect. Um, they did acknowledge that they were performing concurrent allo uh, atlantocentesis in these mares for a, another study at the same time, but it was interesting that this may be a sort of initial feasibility study that looking at actually local treatment with antibiotics of the uh, affected placenta in cases of placentitis might be a viable route of therapy. Sometimes it's nice to look at the papers that demonstrate no effect, as it is to look at the papers that demonstrate an effect. Um, it is interesting when we're working up cases uh, for reproduction uh, referrals that we get a lot of, when we're asking questions, we say, right, well, we might consider doing this. It's okay, we've already done that, we've already done that, we've already done that, and everything's been done, and there's not really left anything much left for us to do other than start again. So the team um, in Switzerland, um, Ismay in Evansch and the University of Switzerland, and also Harold Seem from Hanover in Germany, looked at the effect of misoprostol. And there's a couple of things to take from the paper. One is that misoprostol, PGE1, was um, affected sperm motility. So therefore, if it's put in close to insemination, you might have a negative effect on semen. And they also demonstrated that infusing it in deep intrauterine infusion, um, either on the same day or the day before the ovulation drug, didn't increase pregnancy rates um, at all, suggesting that intrauterine prostaglandin does not enhance pregnancy rate in mares without a history of unexplained fertility. This is an interesting one from a physiological point of view, looking at the effect of embryo reduction and transfer on luteostasis uh, in the mare. So it's another way of looking at the maternal recognition of pregnancy. Um, I'm not gonna dwell on this for too long, but essentially crushing of embryos in mares on days 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, and 16 resulted in progressively greater levels of luteolysis, indicating that the uh, maternal recognition of pregnancy factor is actually not fixed on a day, and it might vary between mares. 
and I'm going to call that a stop. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, James. That was great. Thank you for listening to this Equine Veterinary Channel podcast. More about the subjects discussed today can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward slash evj.